Welcome to Subject to Power. I'm El Kamihira. Men's porn use is so widespread, so normalized, so uncontroversial that it's controversial to be critical of pornography. But as my guest Gail Dines says, questioning what is is in her job description. Gail is a sociologist and a world-leading expert on pornography. She's the author of Pornland, How Porn Has Hijacked Our Sexuality, and the founding president of Culture Reframed, an organization that provides educational tools for parents and teachers to cope with the impact pornography is having on young people. Gail Dines' work is very unique in that it completely reframes pornography to show the industrialization of sex that has taken place in the last 70 years. And in this conversation, she takes me through the key moments in the evolution of porn, from Hugh Hefner to Girls Gone Wild to OnlyFans. We also talk about what today's sex industry does to women, what consuming it does to men, and how we build resistance to the pornification of our lives. I wanted to ask you, first of all, like how you came to this work. Well, it was actually accidentally how I got to this, because when I was thinking, what do I want to be when I grow up? I didn't think expert on pornography. That sort of was not in the map of my life. So what happened was I was writing my PhD on the sociology of education and how sexism works. And I was volunteering at the local rape crisis centre. And I was noticing when I was going through police reports about rapists, how they'd often find, this was pre-internet, they'd find like, you know, a stash, a huge amount of pornography. So that was kind of thinking in my mind. So somebody, a friend said to me, there's an organisation, at this time I was living in England rather than the US, and they said there's an organisation called Violence Against Women and Pornography. Do you want to go and hear the talk? And I thought, yes, I'd be interested. And that night, my life changed. I had no idea the level of violence in pornography. And we're talking now pre-1990. So, I mean, the stuff that I saw that day would be not even out there today. It's so soft core. But it would, I just got a sort of visceral sense. Women cannot live in a world where these are the images that arouse men. I just, And I was 22 at the time. But it just hit me. And I went home and called my PhD advisor. And I said, I'm changing my topic. I'm going to do it on the sociology of pornography. And that was it. It got me. I can't say I found it. I have to say it found me. And I think I wrote the first ever PhD in England on pornography. And what I did is in England, you write very large theoretical PhDs. And then you do case studies. I actually used Marxist theory of ideology and took his theory of ideology as a way to legitimise capitalism. And I applied his theory to pornography as a way to legitimise patriarchy. So that was basically the core of my argument about the role of pornography. That's brilliant. And I can't believe how young you were. I was very young. And you know what was interesting? I was newly married. And I always tell this story because of the position that women are in. So we'd only been married a few months. and. I think about how when I went home that night, how my life was at a crossroads. Because if I would have gone home and said, telling my partner what it was about, he would have turned around and said, don't be a prude or it's no big deal. I would have had to divorce him because I couldn't have lived. And But his response was, oh, my God, men look at that. Men find that right. I was like, he was, he'd never seen porn. We were up, both of us, all night, so disturbed by it. And often what happens with women when they're heterosexual and with a man is the men block their ability to become full-blown radical feminists. And I've seen that happen many times, that you make a choice. In some cases, you know, especially if you've got children, where are you going to go if you don't earn money? So sort of heterosexuality as an institution does police women. The men that you're with police them. Luckily, I was with a man who, you know, knew he was marrying a radical feminist. There was no negotiation around that. And he completely signed on to all of it. Whenever I talk about men, I always have to say present company excluded. And of course, my son, is his first language was uh, feminism. So 
you know, I was surrounded by feminist men. So you had a feminist framework already? Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, I'd read Andrea Dworkin. Mm -hmm. I'd read Sisterhood is Powerful. But I have to say, I overlaid the radical feminism onto the Marxist critique of capitalism. And it works so well. The truth is, a lot of the ideas in radical feminism are based in the structural analysis that Marx developed around capitalism. And if you read the early writings, a lot of the early second wave feminists actually came out of a sort of more Marxist approach. So, you know, when they say that we ignore the material realities of women's lives or class or racism, it's like ridiculous. It was radical feminism was founded on the structural understanding of patriarchy, of capitalism, of racism. Those early works are amazing. And what's sad is they don't get taught in universities anymore. They don't know. You know, they're not aware of the structural analysis. And in fact, what they've done is they kind of crushed the concept of liberation, which is a collective concept of revolution. And they've turned it into the individual concept of empowerment. When I joined feminism, I'd never heard the word empowerment because who cares about individual empowerment? I mean, I always say, you know, I'm so empowered. I've got race privileges. I've got class privileges. I'm highly educated. I couldn't be more empowered if I tried. But that meant nothing for the women who cleaned my classroom after I left. And in fact, the empowerment of elite women is based on the exploitation of poor women in numerous ways. So this whole concept of empowerment is a neoliberal individualistic one that replaced the sort of radical feminist notion of liberation which is, you know what, if I'm fine, but you're not, you're my sister, I will walk across mountains to make sure you're fine, because that's what liberation is. I don't want to dwell too long on how you got from there at 22 years old to culture reframed, but can you give me like a sense of your trajectory? Yes. Before I finished my doctorate, I got a position as an assistant professor, got tenure, became a full professor, but I was always an activist. I remember the day I got tenure thinking, I'm never writing another peer-reviewed academic paper as long as I live because it's such a waste of time for all the handful of people who are going to read it. So I was always an activist. I was on the lecture circuit for 20-odd years. So it was around 2015. I'd just given a talk. It's called A Grand Round in a Hospital where basically all the doctors, and in this case, it was the pediatricians and the pediatric nurses, it was a children's hospital. And I went in, and this is very typical. You start off at 9 a.m., and they all come in as professionals. By 9.15, they're all parents, by going nuts. And I gave this lecture on pornography and the harms and to women and children. And, of course, if you've got kids, that's uppermost in your mind. And I looked out afterwards and I thought, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep going to places, dropping what somebody once referred to as a knowledge bomb and walk away. I'm leaving these people in a state of sort of hopelessness. So about the same time that hit me, I gave a talk at a philanthropy conference for wealthy women. And a group of women came up to me afterwards and they said, we want you to start a nonprofit and we're going to give you money, quite a lot. And thought, well, that doesn't happen twice in your lifetime. Right. So I became a professor emerita, stopped teaching. And then I brought together a team of public health experts from pediatricians to adolescent psychologists to nurses to sexual health experts. And we said, look, we have this problem called pornography. And what do we need? Because there's nothing out there to help anybody. And the most important in the initial stages of bringing up a kid is that parents are knowledgeable and skilled about topics. And clearly they were not knowledgeable and skilled about pornography. So we built, using eight experts from multiple disciplines, a program called the Parents of Tweens. And it's free. You can go on to Culture Reframe, just hit Parents Program. And then we built the Parents of Teens. And these are about 13 modules, science-based, interactive, user-friendly, which basically gives parents the knowledge, skills and confidence to talk to their kids about pornography so they can build resilience and resistance in their kids to pornography. That's our goal. Then we started getting professionals coming at us, doctors, 
lawyers, therapists, child protection agencies saying, there's nothing like your program anywhere. We're using it in our trainings. We're teaching parents about it. So it just kind of took off like that because and, and worldwide, internationally, because this is not exactly a glutted field. There's nothing out there for them. It is such a great resource. And there will be a third program, which we've just finished, which is how to teach sex ed with a porn critical lens. And it is a one-stop shop for educators, facilitators. It teaches not just about pornography, but critical media literacy. And what's interesting about it is the first five or six lessons are not on pornography, they're on exploitation, teaching kids the framework of exploitation. And we use examples like coffee growers, people who work in Amazon. They get to understand what exploitation looks like. Then we move into pornography as a form of sexual exploitation. You wrote an article recently about the value chain and kind of making this very impactful comparison between how you look at value chain in products and production, and you compared it to porn. Can you kind of break that down? So basically, I often actually write with my husband. He's an economist. So the idea of value chains actually came out of a discussion with him. He teaches at a business school and he studies value chains how you can be an activist in in the weak link of a value chain. So let me explain what a value chain is. It's basically all the mechanisms that go into producing a product, from sourcing, labour, production, consumption, distribution. And so what you do, for example, when those who were wanted to do activism because of the coffee growers being exploited. When they looked at the value chain of coffee from actual coffee planters and then all along to where it gets distributed, they realised that the weak link to do the activism was not at the coffee growing level. It was actually at the distribution level through Starbucks because you know where Starbucks is, they have money, you can do campaigns against them. So when you take that, think about the value chain of the sex industry, how women and girls are sourced, which is often through pimping, child sexual abuse, poverty, all of these things, the actual production, the making of pornography, or the production of actually selling, being sold as a prostituted woman, through to consumption and distribution. Now, those who do value chains then have a concept called harm chain, and they argue that it causes harm along the chain. So what you have to do is figure out how to cause less harm. And what I argue in the article is that actually this won't work for pornography or the sex industry because it's actually the value of those is the harm done to women. The more harm you do to a woman on a porn set, the greater the value to the viewer. So my argument in there is you cannot minimize the harm because it's based on harm. So what you need is abolitionism. You need to abolish the whole sex industry. So it's really sort of flipping the concept of value chains on its head and then using that to argue why you need to abolish the sex industry, all the arms of the sex industry. One of the things I love about your book, Pornland, and your work in general, is this like big picture sociological view and this long history of tracking it from its beginnings, really, in popular culture all the way up till now. And you do talk about MindGeek in this article. And I just want to hear your story about what MindGeek did to the industry. It's actually revolutionary what they did to the porn industry. So when the internet became domesticated in around, around 2000, the pornographers were all over it and they cannibalized it. And also, it wasn't just the internet that drove pornography. Pornography drove the internet as well. A lot of the R&D money from the porn industry went into building, for example, payment systems, pop-ups, pop-downs. Those were built by the porn industry. So that it's hand in glove the internet and pornography. And when it hit in 2000, and the pornographers were obviously ready for this, um, it made pornography more affordable, anonymous and accessible, the three A's that drive demand to pornography. And what was astounding was overnight, it was not a gradual process, overnight it became hardcore. Overnight, you couldn't find barely softcore anywhere. 
And it was mom and pop production and distribution. So you had tons of sites, all you had to pay for to get any of the images. And you had these small shops opening up, producing pornography, going on a website, building a website. Anyone with a camera could basically make porn. Then in 2007, Fabian Thyman, who was a German IT guy, he got the idea to basically reshape the industry into tube sites like YouTube. So what he did, he started a company called Manwin, M-A-N-W-I-N, Women Lose, Manwin. And he basically vacuumed up and pirated material from the paid websites and put them up on Manwin for free. So a lot of the porn industry went bankrupt because people were not paying anymore. You could get it for free. And in 2009 or 10, he was kicked out of Manwin because he was under arrest for tax fraud. And they renamed it MindGeek. And what MindGeek is now is basically it has built and maintains the infrastructure of the entire online porn industry. There was an article I read, I think, in Forbes where they said, if you're in the porn industry, whatever you do, whether you're a performer, whether you're in lighting or filming, you are never more two steps away from MindGeek. It's basically the big bully on the block, and it is a bully. People are terrified of them. They now run the largest website there. The biggest one is Pornhub, which is very is really branded now as like the cool place to be. And when you talk to kids, they actually see Pornhub as just an extension of Snapchat, Instagram. They don't see it as pornography because it's been so well branded. They sell merchandise. You can buy a Pornhub a sweatshirt, coffee mug, whatever. And it's all hardcore, all hardcore. And what it's done is a number of things. The first thing it's done is it's put women in desperate situations. Well, first of all, you've got to be desperate to go into pornography. Let's remember that. You don't have women with more degrees or doctorates lining up to go into pornography. And it's made them even more desperate because it used to be if you were in a porn movie and somebody paid for it, every time they clicked on, you got a percentage. Now it's free. These women can't make money. So it's driven them into stripping and prostitution, even just more danger. Like these women are in terrible danger. You know, when women have to put food on the table for their kids, they will do anything. I would have done that if I couldn't feed my kids. That's what I would have done. So it, it really revolutionized the economics of the industry. And by doing so, it sort of opened the door for what is going to be the next major shift, which is sex carrying. So this is where it's going as well. OnlyFans is enormous, again, been branded as the cool place to be. I think it's got 170 million users. And this is where you have live sex shows with the women for money, of course. And, of course, a lot of the women, the pornography and the prostitution come together because the women in porn only last often about three months because of the bodily injuries, uh, the STIs. And that's not a long bus ride from the valley in L.A. to Nevada brothels. And it's also true in other countries where you've got webcamming, like Romania and Colombia are the two largest countries of webcamming, poor countries where women are desperate. So really, MindGeek is, if we're talking about value chains and harm chains and going after them, we go after MindGeek. I would love to see a ton of class action suits by the women harmed in the making of pornography, by parents whose kids have been harmed in the consumption of it, by women who've been raped because men have been using. But I would just love to see civil suit after civil suit so we can bankrupt them. There's no point in sending them to prison because you'll get another whole new set jumping up. What you have to do is destroy the profit motive, make it so cumbersome to produce and consume pornography that it's not worth it. I'm having trouble <laughs> seeing that future because it just seems so intransigent. And also, like you're describing, it's kind of an ecosystem of like the harms chain that seems to move women back and forth into yes. pornography, stripping, prostitution, uh, webcamming. Well, generally speaking, once you've been in pornography and you've, and you know, it wrecks you emotionally, physically. 
and then they move from to stripping and prostitution. They don't go back into pornography because they don't. These women, it so shows on their bodies and faces what they've been through. But the prostitution, stripping, and webcamming is a revolving door, right? But you generally start in pornography, and then they use you up, squeeze every inch of your life out of you, and then you're thrown out into the rest of the sex industry, which is really, I think, if you want to think of the sex industry, it's a horrible idea, but I'm, I'm going to say, like a butcher shop, you know how a butcher uses every piece of the animal? This is what the sex industry does uses every piece of the woman. There's even cases in trafficking where from some countries, before they sell her on, they take her kidney so they can sell the kidney on the open market and then they sell her to traffickers. I mean, it's just, just awful. Uh, Yeah. All right, so I want to take us back to... A little bit of the history, like how we got here, which you do so well in Pornland, because we didn't get to this extreme overnight, even though the internet was kind of the big ungluing. You talk about the early porn magazines, and one of the most interesting things that I found about Playboy was that the whole idea that they were going after the married guy and giving him an alternative to the prison of marriage, and that that was a very seductive sort of marketing. Well, it was very interesting. It came out in 19, I think it was 1953, which was arguably a very conservative decade. So the real thing that's interesting is how did Playboy become a massive overnight success, which it did, it sold out overnight. And in fact, Hefner didn't put a date on the first one because he thought he would end up in prison and there wouldn't be a second one. And in fact, it became the major magazine of the 50s. One of the reasons is, and he was very clever, you couldn't sell, quote, a pornographic magazine, unquote. So he made it a lifestyle magazine with articles. When you go through the early editions of Playboy, you know, there's like a three-page article on what desk to buy, a two-page article on what suit to buy, because these were upwardly mobile, white, middle-class men. And for the first time, they had disposable income because you had the emerging middle class and they didn't know how to spend it. I mean, it's almost unthinkable to think that Americans didn't have to spend money. But remember, they'd come out of a war and a depression. They were frugal. So now all of a sudden you've got this money. And what Playboy did was very interesting. It said to the white, upwardly mobile, middle class guy, that basically we are your lifestyle magazine on how to dress and act and look the part. So, of course, it had advertisements for clothing and everything. Also, what you did to sell it was, of course, you had the centerfolds, the Playgirl of the Month, whatever it was called. Now, of course, he argued people buy it for the stories and and the high level, and it was a literary magazine. They had some very high level writers. But of course, all of that was just smoke and mirrors to hide the fact that it was a pornography magazine and men were buying it to masturbate to the images. But that image would not have blown anywhere in the 50s. So you wrapped it up in the sort of wrapping of the upper middle class male lifestyle. And the sort of argument was, you know, you're buying it for that. And if you look at the pictures, then whatever, that was the way they did it. And it's very interesting. What he said was um, he always used the concept of the girl next door because the idea was if you buy at the level that Playboy encourages you to buy, if you consume at that level, you can get the girl next door. It was helping capitalism jumpstart mass consumerism. So not only did he commodify women's sexuality, he sexualized commodities. That's what he did. These commodities, what you buy, will make the girl next door look at you in a different way. And, you know, what people don't know is often is the first centerfold he had was with Marilyn Monroe. And she fought to stop it. She was completely devastated by being in Playboy. She'd had those pictures taken when she was basically starving, trying to break into the acting womb. 
And she fought him and he used those pictures for free. She never got a penny and she didn't want them. And you know what's worse about that? Not only did he exploit her in life, when she died, he bought the burial plot next to her. He's buried next to her, which means oh. that even in death, this man is stalking her. Oh. I know it's so horrible. You know, a few of us have talked about, should we dig him up? You know, <laughs> give her some peace. So she's nowhere near this awful predatory guy. The thought of that makes me crazy that this poor woman is buried next to this one of the world's creepiest predators who was shown to be a rapist, you know, molester, the lot. Anyway, so Playboy ran the show from 1953 to 59. And then in the Chicago Tribune, there was a big ad with a bunny in the crosshairs of a rifle. And underneath it said, we're going bunny hunting. And this was an ad for Penthouse. So Penthouse came onto the American market. It was already selling very well in England. It came to the America. And there was a war between 1959 and 1963. Who could produce the most explicit magazine? And what happened is Playboy crossed over away from the upper middle class lifestyle through to a much more pornographic magazine. And so while Penthouse became more graphic and won the battle, Playboy in the end pulled back because it won the war, because advertisers were starting to leave Playboy. They wouldn't go near Penthouse much. You get money from advertising, not from sales. So he declared in 63 that the battle was over and they were pulling back. And then watching from the sidelines was a man in Ohio who owned a strip club and he could see that pornography was getting more explicit and his name was Larry Flint. And it's no accident that after the war between Playboy and Penthouse, Hustler suddenly comes on the market as the hardcore. So that basically the industry then was softcore was Playboy, hardcore was Hustler, and in the middle was Penthouse, which is, by the way, where you never want to be, which is why it never did as well as the others. Then, of course, the VCR, that made it, you could take it home, the pornography. And in the beginning, for every one regular tape sold for the VCR, four were pornographic. So pornography led to the technology of the VCR and then the whole shift towards the internet. Yeah. Which changed everything. So Playboy, Penthouse and Hustler really set the groundwork, laid the foundations for where we are today. Because without those three magazines grooming the American public into seeing pornography as legitimate, you would not have been able to have this explosion in 2000. And what strikes me a bit is the role of male competition in all of that. The one-upmanship you know, doing better, taking more market share, etc., while incrementally compromising women and women's bodies more and more every step of the way. I would say women's bodies are the landscape onto which men enact and write masculinity. We are the blank slate and that the proxy wars played out on women's bodies. And the real war played out is on women's bodies, right? The proxy war between men is on women's bodies. Women's bodies somehow are always the battlefield. And I think that's how men get a sense of power when they're actually disempowered through capitalism, is that, look, I've got a lousy job, minimum wage, my boss speaks to me like shit, I've got no power, but guess who I've got power over? Women and children. You know, there was a moment in the kind of pornification saga where it was made cool to like much more mainstream than it mm -hmm. had previously been mm -hmm. and where it just became acceptable. And I remember these moments really well. I wondered if you can talk a little bit about that, just kind of the figures like Jenna Jameson or, you know, the girls gone wild. Which, by the way, I was an expert consultant that helped to bankrupt Girls Gone Wild. Um, we bankrupted them in the law cases. You in get fact, a medal. the very room I'm sitting in that you can see, we got built on, because I was an expert witness and got paid for it. This is the Girls Gone Wild room because that money paid for this room. So I would say around the 1990s, early 2000s, what you saw was the pornification of the society where and hypersexualization, where 
suddenly it was a free-for-all for women's bodies. You saw the advertisements become much more hardcore. You saw pornography become more mainstream. And I think it was a good idea for you to bring up Jenna Jameson because she, you know, we talk about porn stars. I hate that term because there's probably about five or ten porn stars in the world. The rest of the women are in and out of that industry, no money. But Gemma Jameson was the first porn star. She was, by the way, gang-raped when she was in her early teens. She was neglected by her father. She was raped again by her boyfriend. She was, like, very typical of, you know, the horrible history of abuse that women in porn have. And they used her to kind of whitewash, you know, the blonde, good-looking, all-American girl. And what's interesting, if you read her book, How to Make Love Like a Porn Star, you know, she's in porn at that time and she's trying to say how great it is. But if you read between the lines, you can see she hates it. She said in an interview, while she was still in porn, she said something like, I know men and men are the worst things in the world. They're so disgusting. And she had a massive following. And then she opened the door for some other porn stars. Sasha Gray was very important. Just as Sasha Gray was starting to become big, I was with actually a guest you've had on before, Bob Jensen. We went to the um, Adult Video Expo in Las Vegas. And I was interviewing a pornographer. And he stopped me and he said, you see her? Her name's Sasha Gray. She's going to be really big. She'll stick anything in her cunt to get famous. That's exactly his words. And he was right. Then what happened is she crossed over, started to cross over into a few movies, mainstream movies. And I remember thinking, oh, God, you know, this is a terrible sign. And it turned out it never worked, right? You cannot cleanse the dirt of pornography off your body in patriarchy. So she got very big. And then she disappeared. And this happens a lot because of all the violence, the PTSD, at the height of their careers, they leave. There was another one called Annabella Chong, and her fame, which is terrible, was to be in the largest what they call gangbang ever in history. Hundreds of men lining up, one after the other, just uh, penetrating her. I couldn't watch it all, obviously. I could only stand to see, you know, and there was next to her were bags of ice so they should put on a vagina to stop the swelling in between, all sorts of awful things. Anyway, she got really big. And then I went on her website, you know, I was following her and she said, in big letters, Annabella Chong is dead. I am in my grave. And that was it. You never heard a word from her again. So it just tells you even the porn stars, and these were a handful of porn stars, couldn't do it, just couldn't do it. And you can't think of it. I mean, these women are the strongest women in the world that they can stand this and get up the next day and have the same things happen to their body. They can tolerate this. It takes a very strong woman to be able to live through that. But the price they pay is enormous emotionally and physically. A little bit back to uh, Joe Francis and Girls Gone Wild. So that was another moment. And I remember this so well. Like it was kind of mixed in with MTV. And I remember feeling this like, oh, my gosh, people are just women. Young women are just letting themselves be exploited. It's just so disappointing and upsetting. Well, it was actually, let me give you the background to that so you understand why this happened. So because I was on the case and I was an expert consultant and brought together the expert witnesses, so I worked on that case, two cases, for quite a while. So first of all, what would happen was it's not just these women would go and do this. What would happen is that it would be spring break in Florida and they would say, Girls Gone Wild is coming to town. And they would make a big deal of it. And they would take over bars. They would give free drinks. And they made it like a party scene because he was a celebrity, Joe Francis. So they really sort of got the excitement going. Now, Girls Gone Wild is known for women lifting their T-shirts up. The reality is that's not what Girls Gone Wild was. When you went onto the website and you joined it was hardcore girl-on-girl sex. That was what was making the money, okay? The sort of lifting the T-shirt was this, you know, this is fun bit. 
But the real stuff went on in hotel rooms all over Florida where these girls, for a hat and a T-shirt, some of them, by the way, who I interviewed, not for the case, this was um, in my interviews when I was writing porn, and they were virgins. They'd never had sex before. And this was their first introduction, was in a hotel room having hardcore sex with their best friend who they would never speak to again afterwards because they were both mortified, with three cameramen, lighting, you're completely naked, you're 18 years old and you've got men in their 30s standing around you fully clothed with the camera almost in your anus and vagina. So what would happen is how they would get these girls. So the cameramen were told to go on the beach and look for a tent, what was called a tent, the gorgeous one. And the job was to get her into the actual video, into the room that night so she could be on the video. So what the cameramen would do, because they were older, is they couldn't go up to a girl, 18-year-old young woman, and say, pull your top up, because they'd be seeing what they were, perps. So what they would do is they would infiltrate the college space and they would find a 10 who was surrounded by her friends. And then they'd get the friends to do the dirty work of saying, take it off, take it off, take it off. And I would see these girls, when you watch the tapes, not wanting to do it, and in the end being bullied by their friends, mainly males, to Now, once you got her to lift her top, you'd basically crossed her line. You'd broken her. And that's how you got her into the room that night in order to do the hardcore sex. So this was very careful. He was very, very good at what he did. It wasn't just women throwing themselves at him. It was actually orchestrated to do this. And let me tell you, the women they were really girls, you know, some of them were underage. Their life was over after that. They were thrown out of schools, churches, cheerleading. They were basically became a leper in their community. But he became, he, Brad Pitt went around with the girls gone wild hat on. Joe Francis would throw these enormous parties in his home in LA. And he really, really got himself into the celebrity field. So again, very much like Hefner, sold products. Instead of having the bunny, they had the girls gone wild. He became mega famous, mega rich. And then I'm happy to say we ruined him. He lives in Mexico. I think he declared bankruptcy. The Kardashians still goes on visits. They were good friends with him, yeah. And the Kardashians actually are a very good example of the culture we live in, which is to be famous today is you have to be famous and photographed. That's all you do. You don't have to do anything else. But of course, Kim Kardashian got her start with a sex tape. Which she leaked, which is unusual, because the other sex tapes were actually stolen from Pamela Anderson, Paris Hilton. She leaked her own because she saw that overnight Paris Hilton became a megastar. She leaked her sex tape. But that's kind of forgotten now. She's become kind of, a, again, millions. Being very wealthy is like being having an upmarket cleansing cream. You can cleanse off the so-called dirt of how men think of you as a, quote, slut. Working-class girls can't do that. Studies actually show that working-class girls who are given the sort of call sluts in high school actually go on to really have their life undone in adulthood. It follows them, causes depression, anxiety, they're traumatised by it. Everyone had the school slut, so to speak. Well, that poor girl was probably being victimized sexually by a parent or by a relative or a friend. But she will always carry emotionally that marker of being a slut. I wanted to get into a little bit, like, so not everyone knows that porn is not sex and sex is not porn, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is why you're out here educating, if you can talk a little bit about the distance between porn and sex. I think the way to think about this is porn is an industry, a multi-billion dollar industry. Sex is a human desire and act that should belong to you. It's the difference between porn is to sex what McDonald's is to food. The commodification, monetization of a human need that is stolen from you, repackaged and delivered back at a cost And the package is nothing like the original. So it's basically the industrialization of sex. 
And that's what people don't get. They often argue that, you know, anti-porn feminists are anti-sex. The reality is we're pro-sex. That's why we're anti-porn. We can't stand what the pornographers have done to sex. You can't be pro-sex and pro-porn. You've got to make a decision. You know, and people often say to me, well, there's always been pornography from cave drawings, whatever. Yes, true. But there's not always been a porn industry. That began in 1953 with Playboy. That was the first time any pornography magazine interfaced with mainstream capitalism. So what we try and do really in our work at Culture Reframed and in Pornland, which I really stress as well, is you've got to think of this as one of the most sophisticated businesses around. Also, it is a multi-billion dollar above ground business that has absolutely no regulation. It is the most unregulated. It's like we deregulated the tobacco industry or or alcohol. Because anyone, any age can get onto a porn site. And really what pornography is, is when you go on the main porn sites like Pornhub, what you're actually seeing is torture. It's torture. They weaponize sex in order to torture her. And in fact, the very definition of the acts of torture map on perfectly to pornography. And, you know, you're not allowed to consent to torture. So the whole business is illegal anyway. I don't care how many contracts that woman signed, you cannot. It's like you can't consent to having your kidney removed. As a society, we've decided we can't do that. So we also decided you can't torture. But yet, as long as you do it on a porn set with women, with the camera going, somehow it doesn't class, it isn't get classed as torture. And you make the distinction as you track this history from like softcore to hardcore to gonzo. And I think in that sense, it's also not sex in terms of like the physical, extreme physical stuff that you're looking at. You know, this is hard to unpack. And we have trouble, those of us who are studying this, that in a way from the viewers, it is sex. Because they're not just, if they want to torture her, you know, they can beat her with a baseball bat. There's lots of things they can do. Why is it always about penetration, calling her names like bitch, whore, cum dumpster, and everything they do? So it's really the weaponization of sex. And the goal is to make a profit of torturing her. But torturing her alone, you see it for what it was. Like, you know, imagine being strangled, hands around the throat that can kill you. Imagine she was fully clothed, he was fully clothed, and we had a website where basically he's just strangling her. We'd see it for what it was. But again, have that while she's being penetrated by three men and it becomes suddenly sex. So you have to have the sexual element in there in order to legitimise it and take away or rather render invisible that it is actual torture. One of the interesting things in your book is listening to or watching men talk about porn on the comment boards, etc. I think it's so insightful to hear how they talk about it. Totally. So I went on the porn discussion boards where the porn aficionados go, the ones really into it. And I read their threads, what they were writing about. And it was so interesting. For example, one thread that had hundreds and hundreds of responses was called painful anal. And somebody asked, somebody direct me to a porn scene where the bitch can't stand anymore because the anal sex is so painful. And men were writing in, look at this movie at three minutes, 14 seconds, and you can see She's in terrible pain and she can't stand it. And they were all putting all of them favourite scenes where she's basically just falls apart because it's all so painful. Another thing they got really upset about, and it was a long thread, you know, on the porn sites they used to put things like, and they still do, fresh meat, which means she's never been on porn before, or they'd have a big banner, first time ever on camera. So one guy had joined a website first time ever, and he recognised the woman from another porn film. So he was enraged. How dare they? I spent money on this, and I seen this bitch elsewhere. This was not the first time ever. And all the others wrote in in similar rage. And so I'm reading this thinking, why are they so upset? 
And then it dawned on me. What they were upset about is they wanted to be there at the moment where she moved from a civilian to a slut. They wanted to be present at the moment she became slutified in their minds. And if she'd already been in porn, she was a slut. So you were not watching it. So they wanted to be there at that critical moment when her life forever changed. And that's what got them upset. And then I came across another thread, huge thread. And now they refer to the women all over these discussion boards as bitches, whores, cunts, you name it. Suddenly I'm reading a thread about my sweetheart and sweethearts and my love. And it's about pornography and they're talking about their love and their sweetheart and their darlings. And I'm thinking, what what is this? This is like, I've never seen this on the website. You know what it was? It was threads around sex dolls. They were in so-called in love with their sex dolls and they talked about what a sweetheart she was, what a great relationship they had. And like one guy wrote, you know, because you have to have their anuses and vagina and mouths repaired because from overuse, you can imagine. So they send them back to the... They're $6,000, these dolls, right? So they send them back to get them repaired. And one guy wrote, you know, he's sending his doll back and it's going to be three weeks. How am I going to get through these three weeks? He said, I don't know what to do. And then a ton of guys come on and say, we're with you, bro. We've been there. We know what it's like. We're here to support you. And let me tell you, when she comes back, it'll be better than ever before. I felt like I'd fallen down a rabbit hole as I was reading these. So just... (laughs) Just just to make sure I got this right. So the way they speak about actual women is just pure abuse. Totally. The way they talk about their sex doll is with affection and tenderness. And love. They sounded love. like they love them. I mean, and of course, you know, what's better than a female who doesn't speak, doesn't ask for anything, and has three orifices open 24 hours a day? And when you're done with her, you can shove her in the cupboard, right? You're done in the closet, you're done with her. And a lot of these guys had three, four, five sex dolls. They name them. They don't actually just put dolls. They give them the name. Have you noticed that one of them tends to get jealous if you spend too much time with the others? And then another one said, you know, these girls, they just keep stealing my shirts. What is it? Why do they want to wear my shirts all the time? Honest to God, it was like crazy, crazy. And then actually, when I was at the expo, I went up to the sex doll. It's called Real Dolls. And I went up to interview the guy. So I just I started a conversation with him. And I said, you know, about the dolls. And I said, why do you think men buy these dolls? And he said, well, it helps them develop good relationships with women. So I said... Uh, really, how can you walk me through this? So he sort of got this crazy shit he's giving me about how they learn to act with women, etc. And he said, and he saw my face and he says, you look judgmental. And I said, no, I'm just, of course I, I was, you know, but I said no. And then at one point, just as I'm writing, I didn't even look up. I said, tell me, do you fuck the dolls? And he kind of gasped because he wasn't used to someone. I, I said, yeah, do you fuck them? And he said, no, I would never do that. And I said, oh, who's being judgmental now? (laughs) I think it really, the point is the debasement of women, not sex, not intimacy. It's the debasement. Totally. That's what it's about. I mean, the more she's debased and dehumanized, the greater the sizzle. Yes, it's built on that, which is why, as we started this conversation in the harm chain, is you cannot fix it. Because at its very core, it's built on the debasement, humiliation, degradation of women. You take that out, you don't have pornography. That's what pornography is. Because pornography is not just a narrative about sex. It's a narrative about relationships and intimacy. And, you know, when I'm on the lecture circuit, it's so interesting. They're usually packed because you've got the word pornography in there, which draws the students. So you walk in, there's you know, 500 students, and the first few rows are often the athletes, and they've got, you know, baseball caps on backwards, and they're sitting there. And literally, their, I won't say hatred, but their dislike of me is coming. You can feel it, it's palpable. And they're sitting there with their hands crossed, and I can see what's going through their head, which is, what the fuck does this middle-aged woman know about porn? 
And then what happens about 15 minutes in, you see an entire change in their body language. They begin to relax. And if they could reach out and touch me, they would, because they don't like what they're doing. But nobody's ever, and I don't sort of shame and blame them. I talk about how they're being manipulated by the porn industry and what it's doing to them. And, I mean, I often have rows of men afterwards, help me, help me get off porn, I can't stand it. And then eventually what happens is if they're going down the rabbit hole, it's very hard to pull them back. It's very hard. But these lot have not yet gone so far down the rabbit hole. They still have their humanity and realising that this is not who they want to be. But, yes, we've got to realise the damage to our boys and men. And remember, when you damage boys and men, the collateral damage of that is girls and women. All of that damage done to them through pornography, women and girls pay the price for, as do the boys. This is why, as a sociologist, I argue it's a cultural issue. It's not an individual issue. You know that argument, if you don't like porn, well, don't look at it. That's ridiculous. It's like saying, well, if you don't want to breathe polluted air, don't go near polluted air. You can't. It's an individualist answer to what is a public health crisis. I have to say there's many men I come across, young men in colleges, who are so injured by it and recognise the injury and want help. And what drives me nuts is when we start hearing people ask me questions about ethical porn or feminist porn. You can't make a absolutely unethical industry based on the destruction of women ethical. How do you do that? It's not possible. It's like slavery. You know, the slavery was a completely morally bankrupt system. What, by paying them a little bit, you were going to make it more ethical? No, some systems are too morally bankrupt to ever be shifted into the ethical universe. I think you say this in your book too. By the time they first encounter porn, most men have internalized the sexist ideology of our culture. And porn, rather than being an aberration, actually cements and consolidates their ideas about sexuality. And it does it in the way that gives them intense sexual pleasure. Yeah. So I think if we lived in a egalitarian society where women were truly respected, if we lived in that, men wouldn't be able to look at porn. They wouldn't. It would be such a vile thing to look because you know most women I know can't stand to look at it. Although the younger women are looking at it more, but women I know of my age or younger can't stand it. And we know actually from studies that a lot of the younger women who watch it are actually terrorised by it. And I've got a sort of little anecdote here that, you know, as I said, my son's first language was feminism. And he wasn't banged over the head with it. It was just he lived in a feminist household. So you internalise it. And we talked about the work I did when it was age appropriate. And we'd have conversations about pornography when it got to be age appropriate, which was around 11. I had the first conversation with him is I said to him, you know, you're probably going to come across porn. I said, maybe your friends will show it or you'll stumble on it or maybe you'll want to see what it looks like. And I can't be with you all the time watching that you don't see. I said, you don't want me with you all the time. You don't want me breathing down your neck all the time. I said, and but before you look, I want you to think about something. You have a choice to look. You don't have to look. You have a choice. And, I, and before you make that choice, think about this. We don't know what your sexuality is yet. We don't know whether you're gay, straight, bi. We don't know. And you know what? You will grow into a wonderful sexuality that is as wonderful as you are. And it will be yours and you will own it. But if you look at porn, you are giving something away. And these are the way we talk, we've talked in our house. I said, you'll be giving your sexuality away to predatory capitalists. You will no longer own it. So you have to make a decision whether you want to own your sexuality and see how it grows or whether you want them to shape it for you. And when he was in college and we were talking, he said to me, I said, we're talking about porn. And he said, well, mum, you pretty much ruined that one for me, which was, of course, exactly my goal was to I didn't want my boy who had been brought up, you know, slathered in love and everything. 
and to be able to have a feminist view, not only of women, but of his of his own body and his own bodily limits and integrity. I didn't want them to take that away from him. But you can't expect all parents to do that work. You know, I was an expert in the field, which is why we built, by the way, the Parents Programme. And you can get to that through culturereframe.org. And you can learn how to build resilience and resistance in your kids to porn. We've laid it all out for you. Parents need help. And given that, you know, most parents are working two jobs to put food on the table, overwhelmed, you can't expect them to take on a study of pornography. So we did this for them. We built a program so that programs so that they will get help on how to deal with this issue with their kids. It's so necessary because of the age, how easily accessible it is and how kids are being shaped by it. Pornography is unlike any other substance you use. If you use alcohol or opioids or whatever, you can get that out of your system. You know, you detox. How do you detox from porn? The images are in your head. The ideologies that porn created are in your head. And we don't have anywhere near enough people anywhere out doing this work in schools, helping kids deal with the fallout from pornography. This is a terrible dereliction on the part of educators not to have classes on pornography. And often when I've lectured, can't get out of the room, there's so many questions. They're following me into the parking lot because nobody's ever provided them with this analysis before. And sadly, this is not a glutted world I'm in. There's a handful of people doing this. So they never hear it. They never hear it. Instead, they hear the third wave neoliberal feminism of porn is empowering, which is not how any of them feel. This this goes against how they feel. Part of it, obviously, is that, and you talk about this a great deal, is the pornification of cultures. So it all feels so inevitable I feel like most of my life I've been in a mindset of like, it's just is. No, nothing is. Nothing yeah, is. No, no, I know. Yeah, yeah. But, but that to go against it in some ways just feels like like going against our reality, yeah, that's our whole reality. That's what we reality. do as yeah. feminists. That's what we do. That's our job description is that we refuse to give in to the patriarchy and we fight like hell. Because you know what? If we don't fight as feminists, Everything's lost. What makes this world livable is women. Or when you think of every major social movement, it was started by women. And then, of course, when it took off, the men come in and take over. But women make this world livable. And I think that when, as women, and of course, feminists, we have this sort of slow boil rage. Now, it can't overtake you. Rage can kill you as an activist. So you have to have it simmering but manageable. And you take women with this simmering rage that we have, and you bring us together in a real feminist movement, not with this empowerment shit, but real liberation. We're unstoppable. My faith is in women, absolutely. And I have, you know, I think I was born a feminist, but I've been in the radical feminist movement since I was 18. And I'll tell you, I mean, I couldn't imagine my life without it. Who would I be? How would I even make sense of the world? I feel so fortunate that before me, my foremothers provided an analysis because otherwise, you know, I remember when I was going to promote my book in Australia, uh, I was chosen at the Sydney Writers Festival and they send you a questionnaire and they said, one of the questions was, pick a literary figure you would be from books. And it just immediately came to me who I would be without feminists. And I wrote this, I said, if I hadn't become a radical feminist at 18, I would be the mad woman screaming in the attic all night. Because this notion this of the woman howling in the attic, of course she's howling. She's got no words. And yet she lives in a crazy society. So I would be howling all night without radical feminism, and probably all day as well, given the world we live in. It is such a gift to us. It is such a gift. And I really do encourage your listeners to get, to really go into the radical feminist writings. Andrea Dworkin is a must, Robin Morgan, all these radical feminists who laid the groundwork. Oh God, what a gift they gave us. What a gift. Thank you, Gail, so much. This was wonderful, wonderful conversation. And thanks for your 
all the work that you've done so very much. This was great and your questions were great and I, I love the way you asked them. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness. Mm-hmm.